I, I took a little a family survey and this past week, and I'm like, hey, kids, you know, you're cool, you're young. Like, what is, what is the cool word for uh, somebody who is, who is great in their field, like the best, right? Like, is it, is it epic, or what's, what's the word? And they said words like legendary or the goat, right? The greatest of all time, G-O-A-T, the goat. And I said, okay, so who, who, who's the, like, when you think of the goat, who, who do you think of? Who comes to mind? And so they gave me some names, like, you know, the Beatles, obviously, they're, you know, 150 albums, like, that's, that's crazy, amazing, and some other names. And I just want to kind of go through quickly some of the names that, that, uh, that they came up with, okay? So the first one um, we kind of came up with together was Shohei Otani, and I don't know if you're familiar with him, but since Babe Ruth, like, nobody has compared a player to Babe Ruth until now. This guy hit a bomb on Friday that like went to a part of the stadium that nobody's ever hit the ball to. Not only that, but he pitches. So he's a power hitter. He's hit like 33 home runs, I think, before All-Star break. You want to watch this guy tomorrow at the Home Run Derby at the All-Star game. And just, he's amazing, okay? So we would say maybe he's not a GOAT yet, but he is on his way to being legendary, right? Another one is Serena Williams. I mean, there's no question. I think she got hurt at the Wimbledon. Uh, recently, so she might be retiring, but Serena Williams has changed a sport. Like, it's amazing. I think she's won like 23 Grand Slams, and so we would look at Serena Williams and we would say, absolutely greatest of all time, perhaps. Let's go to the next one. I think it's Tom Brady. And whether you love him or hate him, no one can argue he has seven Super Bowl rings. Like, he has to be on the list of greatest of all time. I think he's been to 11 Super Bowls. I just read an article this past week that said wherever he's lived since he was a little boy, that state has had a bunch of championships for their sports teams. So whether it was California or Michigan or Boston or Tampa Bay, like, you can't argue with the stats. Like, he is the greatest of all time, and even even the state is, like, blessed with his presence. It's amazing. Um, What was the next one? I forget. Oh, yeah, Michael Jordan. I mean, nobody's going to argue that, right? I mean, greatest of all time. This is the cereal box that I looked at my entire high school life every morning, Michael Jordan. And then, and then one time, in the cereal box, they put a poster. And so I got the poster of Michael Jordan, and that was in my bedroom growing up. And there's no question, Michael Jordan is the GOAT. Like, he has inspired how many of... America's young people to just be as great as they can be in basketball. And then there is the Chicago Bears. And those of us, and just stay with me, I know some of you are like, really, are we going to talk about Jesus yet? But just stay with me for a moment. I, those of us who call Jesus Lord understand at a deep level, like, this is the greatest team of all time. There's no way, no, I mean, no other team has been able to record a Super Bowl shuffle halfway through a season, and then deliver on that Super Bowl in such an incredible way. Like the 85 Bears did that. It's crazy. Now we're going to go back in time a little bit to the year 1257, I think is the next one. This is Sir William Wallace. Now, Sir William Wallace, he was basically uh, just a simple Scottish landowner, and he defeated an English army at the Battle of Stirling Bridge, 1297. 
And if you're not familiar with William Wallace, then you probably remember he was the central character in the movie Braveheart, made famous by Mel Gibson. Great movie. Um, So he defeats the English army, and then he's later betrayed by one of his own Scotsmen, and he is hung, drawn, and quartered for treason. Do not look that up on Google. That is a, a terrible way to die. But his sacrifice inspired an entire country to pursue their freedom. And here's what I've discovered in my, in my short 48 years of life on this earth. Here's what I've discovered. The greatest leaders that I've ever met, the greatest individuals that I've worked with or worked for, didn't set out to be a great leader. They set out to do a great work, knowing that they needed to inspire others to get the job done. Michael Jordan, Tom Brady, they didn't set out to be the greatest. They set out on a mission to win. Neither of them did it alone, and they would have to admit, love them or hate them, if you played on their teams you would know what it's like to be inspired to do a great work. The greatest leaders in history, and some of you can stop listening right now, and and this this is the nugget that you need. The greatest leaders in history don't grab a stack of John Maxwell books on leadership. They simply set out to do a great work, knowing that they can't do it alone. Today we're going to look at a legendary leader in the Old Testament named Nehemiah. So if you want to open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1, or you can turn to page 511 in the Pew Bible. And while you do that, let me just go a little history nerd on you. Um, Nehemiah was a slave to his captor king. He was a cupbearer, okay? And that's a dangerous job. Basically, uh, at that time, uh, kings were being poisoned, and so his job was to be close to the king, to drink the, the king's wine, make sure that he didn't die. And if he didn't die, it gets passed on to the king. So it's a dangerous job. Now his brother comes from Jerusalem, and something happens. As his brother is sharing the status of things in his hometown, the, the remnant of the Israelites that are left in Judah. Now let me go back about 100 years. Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar basically comes in and destroys uh, Judah and Jerusalem. Like, he, he annihilates it. You might remember the story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. Like, those are the guys that, that Nebuchadnezzar drags back to Babylon. But not after he has demolished the temple. The, the temple that Solomon built that we talked about was the most magnificent thing, and David's resources and gold and all that stuff. It is, it is like not just foundation. It's like below the foundation. And the wall that surrounds the city is, is completely rubbled. Like, he, he just destroyed. He destroyed it. So, the rubble, the, the gates are burned, and, and now, at that time, a nation's, like, entire self-confidence was based upon how well their wall defended them. So, with this rubble, the few remnant Israelites that are still left in that area, I mean, enemies from all over can just go in and just pillage whenever they want, and so... You know, national pride is at an all-time low, 
and, uh, and, and they're scared, and they're hungry, and it, they just they cannot get ahead. So that's 100 years before this story of Nehemiah. 50 years later, uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon is actually defeated by Persia. Okay, So now they get their dues, and so now it's, it's Persia is ruling that area. And we have King Artaxerxes, who is the ruler at that time. And so Nehemiah, most likely, didn't he, he, he hadn't been born in his homeland. He'd probably been born in Babylon, so he's never seen it. But he's still, he's a Jewish slave. He's never had a day off, right? He's working for this king. There's this Jewish remnant that's left behind. It's a terrible situation. And so Nehemiah, he's a slave. He, he hears this brother's news, and he's just like, hey, how's, how's things at home? And the brother tells him, like, it's, it's, it's not good. And in that moment, God breaks his heart. And he feels like God is calling him to do something about it. And he prays and he fasts about this calling and God confirms it. And he goes before his boss, the king, which is like a really big deal because, he, I mean, you don't do that. And he asks for time off and resources. And amazingly, um, in the face of enemy opposition, he gets permission. And with an unskilled labor force, unskilled, discouraged labor pool, he rebuilds a wall that is 16 feet tall, it's four and a half miles around, it's three feet deep, and he does it in 52 days. It's amazing. And, the, and this is, like, th- there's no miracles, right? Like, there is no, God doesn't strike down the enemies, um, they don't go to sleep one night, and angels rebu- rebuild the wall. I mean, this is just, this is leadership 101 stuff. No miracles, he's not a religious leader, He's a normal guy like you and me. It's an amazing story, and it's filled with all kinds of application. Nehemiah was a goat. Like, he was one of the greatest of all time. And if the Israelites had Wheaties back in 400 B.C., I promise you, this guy's face was on the cover of a Wheaties box. I remember reading this for the first time, and it resonated at such a deep level I just noticed several things Nehemiah did that we can do even today, and and I've kind of clung to these principles for the last 10 years, and and they've shaped the way I lead at home and in the church and in our community, and I hope you'll find value in these passages as well. So let's read the first chapter. We're going to read all the way through, okay? I'm not even sorry about it. And then we're going to go back, and we're going to dig out the gold nuggets and talk about each real quickly, okay? So here we go. All right, we're going we're gonna to start in verse 2. Uh, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. 
I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. Then he goes into chapter 2, and he, talk, he, he goes to the king at that point. We're going to stay in chapter 1. Now, don't raise your hand, but have you ever received bad news? Have you ever encountered, encountered a season of, of grief? Just overcome with grief. And chances are you have, or you're in that right now, or you will someday. And in that moment, what will you do? And it doesn't need to be at a national level like, like it was for Nehemiah, but, but I mean, just what about at home? What about, what about in your work? What about relationships? What about your kids? How do you respond? Like, what do we do with that? Let's look at how Nehemiah responds. Notice Nehemiah's first response. Look at it again. It says, verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I love the fact that he didn't like go and tell others. He, like, he didn't call mom. Um, he, doesn't, he doesn't try to distract himself from the problem. He goes straight to God. Doesn't brush it off. He fasts and he prays. See, prayer should be our first response. But so often, it's, it's like my last resort. Can you relate? Like, you're going to try everything before it's like, oh, I guess I better pray. Prayer should be our first response. And maybe you're like me, and like, I'm just going to be honest, moment of transparency here. I listen to those guys from the Oaks pray, like Chuck and Dean and um, Marty, and it is awesome. Like, I'm just like, whew, I can't do that. Man. And guess what? If you feel that way, that's exactly where the enemy wants you to be. Like, why do I, I don't even, I, don't even, I can't even try, right? They just want you to give up. So I would encourage you to just keep it simple when you pray. Talk to him like you would talk to a friend. You don't have to use King James Version language. You don't have to use these and thous. Like, just, just talk to him. Write him a letter if you want. It's called journaling. It's awesome, and it works. Just be you. God hears you. And if you don't know what to pray, Nehemiah gives us an example 
a little later on in this chapter that you can borrow. Do you know that? You can pray scripture. Like you can borrow the faith of some of these amazing characters in the Bible. You can just pray their prayers. Scripture says he fasted and prayed. What is fasting? And I don't want to blow over this too fast because I've done that before and I've just assumed everybody knows what that is. Well, you probably heard like it's, it can also be like a dieting strategy. So maybe you've heard recently like intermittent fasting. Um, but that, this is not what Nehemiah did and what Jesus did in the New Testament, what Scripture talks about um, in, in terms of a spiritual discipline is a spiritual strategy. Okay, fasting and prayer. It's a season of going without something, usually food, and uh, replacing it with prayers, basically like skipping a meal. And instead of using that time to eat your meal, you, you spend your time in prayer. You can fast, you know, a meal a day. You can fast for the whole day. You can fast for a week. Um, you can do what's called a Daniel fast, which is basically just going straight, you know, vegetables, and uh, you can, or you can even fast from social media or uh, television. You can fast from caffeine. That's a really healthy thing to try sometime. I mean, obviously, if you have medical concerns, you want to talk to your doctor before you, you jump into fasting. But, but why would anyone do this? Let me just say that when you need a serious breakthrough, when you have a big decision, fasting is the key that can unlock that breakthrough. Remember when the disciples were having trouble casting out uh, demons, Jesus even said, you know, those only come out by prayer and fasting. I mean, he gives us this perception in that moment that, that fasting kind of takes our prayer to a, to a higher level. So it's a rewarding spiritual practice. I like to think of it as a way to just really humble ourselves. And I think, and I just always imagine this, I don't know if this is, if this is accurate theologically, but I just always imagine like, if it's, if it's serious enough to fast about, I just imagine God saying, like, oh, he's, he's fasting about this. Like, that's, that's a big deal to him. Like, we're going to, let's go there, right? It does something to us, though. I mean, it kind of allows our focus to tighten. And, and I, I, when I fast, I feel like the world slows down, honestly. Like, where there's no margin in a typical, and I'm just, you know, I'm caffeinated to get going, and then I, it's... It's a time where I can just kind of, it slows my, my, the world kind of slows down, my mind gets sharp. And it's interesting, when we look at the timeline of when Nehemiah's brother came, it says that he came, I should have read verse 1 too, but it says that um, the month of Kislev, and then at the beginning of chapter 2, it says the month of Nisan, and scholars would say that that was basically from November to probably March. So it's not like he just like he 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 grieved it for a couple of days and then he went and talked to the king. Like he prayed and fasted through probably a 90 to 150 day period. Like this was this was serious. And and here's what's difficult in our culture because we live in such an instant culture, don't we? Like before COVID, remember like Amazon Prime, like next day shipping. Now it doesn't matter. It's like 14 days no matter what. But but we it kind of has conditioned us into these expectations. And the convenience have kind of impacted our ability to, to abide and to take our time and to be intentional about, about slowing down and, and, and fasting and prayer. And there's this process of seeking God and waiting on Him. And, and the waiting room is part of the process. And maybe that's where you're at. Like you've been praying about this, 
this thing that, that just weighs heavy on your soul right now and there's no answer, like embrace the waiting room. There is, there is some richness to be found there. And it can be a beautiful season. At least I've found it can be a beautiful season. It's inconvenient. I mean, we want the answer. But these moments where we, we're in the waiting room and we're fasting and we're praying and we're bringing this to God, I mean, these can be the richest seasons of our, our spiritual life. So why did Nehemiah do this? He was seeking God for clarity about his calling. This is a big deal. Like he is, he is, he stands next to the king every day. And there's something going on in his heart and in his mind he's never felt before. And he's feeling a calling to do something crazy. And he is taking this to God in fasting and prayer. He's seeking God for clarity about his calling. It's interesting, too, the next thing that he does is confesses his sins. Let's look at the text right after that. It says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. This is, this is really interesting, and I think it's an important key here. Confession is a powerful spiritual practice, okay? And, and we kind of can become intimidated by that word confession. I mean, we think it's like painful. It's like a negative experience. Confession is beautiful. Confession, the Greek word is basically the compound term from to speak and the same. To speak the same. So in essence, confessing is agreeing with God that we have sinned, against him and perhaps others. It's just coming into agreement. If you were at Oak Run over, over the 4th of July on, on Saturday before the fireworks, I mean, you probably saw the lake. It was nuts. Like all these people come down from Chicago. No offense if you're here from Chicago, but you guys are crazy. And, and so like it's, there's just boats everywhere and they're zipping really close to the dock and we're like, man. And we don't go out on the water that day because it's, you know, every once in a while somebody will say, yeah, he's drunk. Yep, he's drunk, you know, because you just see him driving, and you're like, man, there's no way, he's sober. And uh, so we, the next day, we had the jet ski out. I'm not going to tell you who it was, but we had the jet ski out, and, and it, it's a classic 1994 jet ski. It's awesome. And uh, we're, pulling, we're pulling this, they're pulling each other around. I'm not on the jet ski, but my kids are, and they're pulling each other around on the boat. And I realized, like, it's not just Chicago people. Like, we're crazy, too. And... At one point, you know, they're swinging, they're swinging each other around. And at one point, it's like so dangerously close to this buoy. Everybody on the dock that's watching them recognizes like, whoa, that was close. And I'm, I like yell out there like, hey, you realize how close you were to the buoy? And, and I hear, well, that's what he wanted. I'm like, no, 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 no. Did you see how close he was to the buoy? Well, not until it happened. And so I know, what we're looking for there as a father, right, is just some sort of acknowledgement that we saw the same thing. Like, that was really dangerous. I need you to speak the same, right? I need to see that there's, there's recognition there that, uh, that you saw what I saw. And when you don't get that, what are you going to do? You're going to take the jet ski away. Like, you're going to save somebody's life. So that's a terrible example of confession. But I hope, I hope you understand that, that that's all confession is. It's a beautiful thing. It's speaking the same. 
right? It's not painful. It's not... Um, and don't misunderstand me too, because I think we need to understand, this doesn't mean that, that the cause of every trial or hardship or suffering is the result of personal sin. It, it's not. Um, but however, when we seek God in our difficult seasons, and we agree with Him about His truth, we humble ourselves and we basically, we're submitting to the authority. When, when my son doesn't acknowledge what I saw, and I know he saw it, it there, 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 there's a sense that he's not submitting to, to the authority. And that's all confession is. Finally, we see him simply recall the character and promises of God. I love this. We need to do this more often. Um, here's what he says. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Drop down, verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Like He's like reminding God. Remember? Like the, the, remember the promise you gave Moses? Like, Remember the promise, the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. And that's what had happened. The people of Israel were unfaithful and God, the Babylonians came in, took them out. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. God knew that. Nehemiah says it as just kind of like this preface, like, remember what you promised? When we find our hearts troubled, remember how great and amazing God's faithfulness is toward us. And if you don't know what to pray, steal that prayer in Nehemiah. It's awesome. A while back, I was having, having one of those weeks where just the combination of um, real estate and preparing a message and preparing for some of the other commitments that were coming due soon had me feeling a little bit overwhelmed. And um, yeah, just a warning. So you'll know when I've had a busy week with work because you'll walk out of here saying like, Yikes. Uh, Scott must have had a busy week with real estate because that was terrible. Um, I'm confident that that'll happen. And, uh, and you'll know it's really rough when we come in and we just push play on Life Church, okay? And, and we'll probably do that anyway. But, uh, but Jenna, in that moment, she sent me a reminder. She texted me, and in uh, that moment, she was on the porch, and I was at the kitchen table, I think, and the text comes. And she basically just texted me the verse of the day. She texted Isaiah 41:13 where it says, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear, I will help you. I'm telling you, young people, find you a spouse that recalls the character and promises of God on your behalf. Made a huge difference. And why does all this matter? Because as leaders, and all of us are leaders at some level, as teachers, and business owners, and farmers, and just human beings, but especially as apprentices of Jesus. On our way to the Great Commission, one of these days, it's inevitable 
God is going to break your heart for what's breaking his. Remember, the greatest leaders don't set out to make themselves great. They set out to do a great work. And if you're an apprentice of Jesus, you have a kingdom to advance. That's a great work. I remember hearing a pastor, uh, Crawford Loritz, on the radio a long time ago, and he asked this question, what makes you pound the table and weep? That is your kingdom purpose. What makes you pound the table and weep? When you look around at the world or in our county or in your neighborhood or in your home, in your classroom, what, what do you see that has become your Popeye moment? You guys remember Popeye? He, he just go about business and olive oil gets beat up enough that he finally says, that's all I can stands and I can't stands no more. Like, what is your Popeye moment? What makes you pound the table and weep? Like, enough. I've got to do something. Like Nehemiah, I believe the answer to that question could be tied to your purpose. The, the why God made you. The why we're still here. And he doesn't just call us up right now. I believe that question will be tied to the future mission of the Grove Church. And there's only one way to know for sure. Pray and fast, confess your sins, and recall the character and promise of God. Next week, we're going to dig into more of what we can learn from Nehemiah, and, and you're going to see that what he does that, that kind of makes him one of the greatest of all time as, as, he, as he kind of continues on this, this journey of rebuilding a wall. But, but right now, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing one more song. So let's stand. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. God, um, I just pray that if there was anything good, that it would, that it would stick, that it would be from you. Um, if there's anything I said or the way that I said it that may be distracted from you, God, I just pray that you would just let that fall like shaft. And so our hearts are open to you, and um, may we go about this week with just kind of this extra awareness that whether we're just looking out the car window or the tractor window or on the bus to Chicago or whatever we're doing that... Um, you may just break our hearts. And when you do, may you give us the discernment to know if it aligns with your purpose. Uh, that's our prayer. So we worship you in this moment. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen.